welcome back to the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 18, so grab your Bibles, turn to John 18. We're going to look at 11 verses today, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, down the center column of seats are a couple Bibles underneath your chair there. You're welcome to use that. I think John's going to be around 590 or so, uh, chapter 18. Uh, If not, you can look at the beginning of the table of contents. That's always helpful. John chapter 18, verse 1 through 11, as you're, as you're getting there, I feel like I got to like, remind us of what we were studying uh, over a month ago. Uh, we've been working through the gospel of John, and essentially what a gospel is, to include John's gospel, are the, the four books that start the beginning of the New Covenant, the New Testament, and they are theological, spiritual biographies of the life of of Jesus. And if you look at Matthew, um, Mark, Luke, John, they're all giving different perspectives of, of his life based upon really firsthand accounts in most cases. And John's gospel can be really broken down into three segments. And we've almost covered all of those. Chapters 1 through 12 cover the first few years of Jesus' early public ministry, 13 through 17 goes in slow motion. John really is uh, only covering about three three hours or so of of Jesus' life as Jesus gives some very intimate, uh, particular instructions to his disciples as he's about to to go to the cross, die for our uh, for our sins and and then resurrect and go to heaven. And then chapters 18 and 21 uh, really are uh, last a few weeks. Jesus is arrested. He's tried six times. He's crucified. He will resurrect and then he'll give another set of final instructions to his disciples before he ascends to the right hand of the father. And so we're going to begin what's called the passion of the Christ here in chapter 18 uh, by reading these verses together here. Read with me. Uh, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, lest these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered at your church and we are, our ears are attentive to what you would have for us today as we dive into this gospel of John. As we gather, Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us as we, uh, as we at as the beginning of the year, focus really on um, you know, our, all, all of our thoughts and minds sometimes go to what have I done wrong? What can I do better in the coming year? I pray that you would center us on, on Jesus 
And as, as John lays before us, um, this God who became man, this, this, uh, this man who was God and presented himself as the I am, Lord, would you help us to center our hearts and our thoughts and our singular focus on Jesus, not just as we go through this passage, but as we begin this year. God, we want to be uh, gospel-centered, Jesus-focused people. And to, to do that, we have to understand who he is. And so, Lord, uh, we're, we're attentive to your word today. Holy Spirit, come and minister to us each, uh, individually, but also corporately, and, uh, and change us by your word and by your gospel. And this is, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage of Scripture begins what's called the Passion of the Christ. And I don't want to take for granted that, that all of you uh, understand what that means. I mean, what, the question is, what is, what is passion? Uh, it is, it is uh, uh, that section of Jesus' life, really the, the latter part of his life, where he would march to Jerusalem, uh, where he would present himself to, uh, to Roman people, religious people, and offer himself up as the Savior of the world, ultimately dying on a cross. The passion is Jesus' own initiative. A lot of times we can look and think that Jesus was a, a victim of a, a malicious crime, that he was charged with, um, uh, he was convicted of something that, for which he did not do. And of course, that's true. But what we see as we, as we think about the passion, but more importantly, as we look at it, as John reenacts it, is that uh, Jesus wasn't necessarily uh, a helpless victim, but he willingly chooses to die in our place on the cross. Um, I think it's unfortunate that when most people think of, of Christianity, they don't necessarily associate it with the word, with the word passion. We think of, uh, when people think of church and and unfortunately, when they think of Christianity, sometimes they think of religion. And here's the essence of what most people think about religion. They think if I obey, if I follow the rules, then other people are going to accept me. God's going to love me. But when we open the pages of Scripture, what we should see is, is that we are passionately loved. We're passionately loved to someone's death. To, to Jesus' death. That's how much God loves us. That's, much, that's how much passion God has for us. And then we're invited to obey out of his passion. Religion is rooted in fear and insecurity. Christianity is supposed to be rooted in knowing that you're loved and you're free to obey God from the love that he has and that he initiates Toward you, I think the church can sometimes be more preoccupied with a whole bunch of superficial, uh, superficial passions. We can be passionate about uh, uh, politics being left or right. We can be passionate about social causes. We can be passionate about helping people who can't help themselves. Jesus was passionate about filling, uh, fulfilling the will of the Father to the point that he would go to the cross to die for those that God had given him. And this really is the core of our faith. The core of our of our faith is not just a superficial experience uh, of relationship with some other as uh, we're having some out of body experience. We have we have an encounter. In fact, we've been invited to have an encounter with a real and true and living God. We've been invited to have faith 
in Jesus. And that's an encounter that's available to, to any and everyone. And it's not because we're born in the right family. It's not because we have a lot of money. It's not because we do everything right. And so God's blessing us because we've we've been perfect people. It's, it's simply because of the grace of God. That's that's the only reason why any of us have relationship with with Jesus. It's simply because of the great grace of God. And that's what we see as Jesus marches towards the cross in John chapter 18 and, and through verse uh, chapter 21. We see what the core of the gospel is. What's the core of the gospel? It, it's Jesus in my place. We'll see him begin to put himself in all the places that we should be, ultimately putting him place on a cross where we deserve because of, of our sin. And I think what John is trying to convey to us is this is how much passion your God has. And he's inviting us to uh, to have that same kind of passion, to tap into it and to live that passionately on earth toward God and and really about everything that we do. And so let's ask ourselves the question. Uh, Let's let's read. Let's reacquaint ourselves with all that John has talked about uh, previously in, in, in all the other chapters that we've covered since February of 2015. I mean, who who is Jesus? And so as we enter our text today and consider this passion, I really want to focus on three titles, three titles that John has sort of acquainted us with over the, the last 17 chapters. Um, and, and here's the question that I think uh, that we need to ask. What does it mean to recognize that Jesus is firstly king of kings? What does it mean to recognize that Jesus is his friend of sinners? And what does it mean to recognize that Jesus is the savior of all? We'll start with this idea of Jesus being the king of kings. This is an ironic passage. Even as I say that we're supposed to recognize Jesus as the king of kings, what we're confronted with in, at the beginning of this passage is this mob coming to Jesus. You've got Roman soldiers, you've got chief priests, you've got all kinds of people with authority that are coming to Jesus. And, and they seemingly have all authority because they can do whatever they want. But at the same time, we have this 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 man, this God man, Jesus, who really has supreme authority over all things. I think what the text shows us is that Jesus is the king of kings in two in two ways. We see it in his sovereignty and we see it in his authority. Verse one, when Jesus has spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Verse two. Now, Judas was betra- uh, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Um, the Kidron Valley is a, a historic place in the Old Testament. We see it sprinkled throughout much of the Old Testament narrative. It's called the Valley of the Kings. It's where a lot of the kings of Israel were were buried. The the garden mentioned is the actual Garden of Gethsemane. We see in the other Gospels they actually say um, the Mount of Olives or or uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, there's really nothing historic about the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a small local, probably walled garden where Jesus met. Often we find it in verse two. Judas knew where it was. It was a public place. Jesus had gone there frequently uh, praying, uh, having intimate times with his disciples there. Um, I think what's important, or at least what John is trying to to point to us as the importance of of this setting is that Jesus isn't hunkered down. He isn't hiding. Uh, He's he's out in the public um, and he's intending to come to this very public place so what's about to happen can actually happen. 
I think the second thing uh, is is that it's not likely an accident that Jesus' crucifixion, him, him marching towards crucifixion, happens in this particular garden. And if you know anything about the Bible, of course, the Bible starts in a garden, right? In, in, in the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth, and he sets down the, the pinnacle of creation, uh, man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden, in the garden of Eden. But here's the here's the juxtaposition that that perhaps John is trying to show us, or at least this is what I get. Adam and Eve failed in a garden, and and what we see here, Jesus is going to be victorious in a garden. Adam and Eve, uh, we they failed in the daylight. Jesus is going to be victorious in darkness, and and so the picture that we get is is Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign over this setting. Even a setting where he is kind of being set up by Judas and all that this this horde of people that he's about to bring to arrest Jesus. And he's sovereign even over his betrayal. Verse three says, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This is an interesting, interesting picture that John is painting for us. He's of course, he's giving us what he's seeing Um, and. All the, the gospel writers see a little bit different uh, perspective of this. And so what John is showing us is this, is this horde of people come toward Jesus in this in this small garden. And he he makes it so that we see that there's a lot of people there, a lot of influential people. I mean, this would be like this. Is, this wouldn't be like Jesus going to the National Mall and uh and everybody's showing up, it would be like this very small familial garden, like across the street, there's a Fairfax County public um, park in my neighborhood. It'd be like Jesus hanging out with his closest friends in this neighborhood and the FBI, the SWAT team, all of Fairfax County police come. The 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 Pharisees would be all the, the mega church pastors from the area and the chief scribes would be the seminary professor. It would be this kind of a mob going to this local garden all to arrest Jesus. Um, I don't know if you've seen paintings of this scene of Jesus in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. Oftentimes artists will portray this as you know Jesus and his his band of 11 disciples and there'll be Judas and he'll come with a, a, a few people maybe a squad of, of Roman soldiers and then a few chief priests uh, what it, what the text means by band of soldiers it would be three to eight hundred soldiers I mean I mean it, it would have been jam-packed with with people of authority coming to arrest Jesus. John is trying to give us this picture of this large group gathering around Jesus uh, to arrest him. And so Jesus is seeing all this scene. He would have seen it from a distance. And John's gospel doesn't tell us that he doesn't give us any more detail about what happens. But Matthew does. And so Matthew, Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, verse 45, we see these words coming from Jesus. He says, see, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of of sinners, and so Matthew's commentary is telling us that Judas, uh, Judas is leading this 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 huge um, cohort of soldiers and and religious leaders, and Judas obviously thought that he was the one both initiating and and bringing this conspiracy about. Matthew continues in verse forty-seven, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them the sign saying, 
The one I'll kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Jesus words here. This this Jesus, uh, friend, do what you came to do. Uh, honestly, we can we can translate that as as both a statement. He's just making a statement. Hey, go ahead and do it, Judas. You know, you're going to do it. But it also could be a command like that. He, that Judas, that Jesus is telling Judas, Judas, you have a role to play. Go ahead and do it. But essentially, this is what Jesus is saying. Judas, I know I know what's going I know what's going to go down. And I think in this interaction between Jesus and Judas, uh, we're we're left asking the question. I mean, who is actually in charge? Is Judas? I mean, is he initiating this and leading this this thing that's happening to Jesus? Or is Jesus really the one who is bringing it all about? And I think what John wants us to know is, especially if you have eyes of faith, is that Jesus is actually in charge. He's sovereign. He's sovereign over all people in all places for all time, even over this conspiracy to kill him. And we see it in his initiative in verse four to ask, whom do you seek? He asked that of, of Judas. Christ is king of kings and that he's sovereign. But he also has all authority. And we see that in verses four and five. Verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Verse five, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And so this detachment of soldiers, we we know they don't they don't know Jesus. They have no interaction with him. Uh, they don't know him from a hill of beans, my grandma would say. Okay, they, they have no idea. Um, they're just following orders. And yet Jesus announces his divine title. What does Jesus say? He says, I am. And that that causes us to go all the way back to to Exodus chapter three, where Moses, uh, where God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush. And he gives Moses the charge. Go back to Egypt. Go to Pharaoh, go to the uh, the Hebrew people and tell them that I've come to set them free. And Moses uh, responds back to God saying, well, well, what do I tell them when I tell them that somebody came to me in a burning bush? I mean, who who are you? And God says, I am. The literal translation is I am that I am. Basically, what God is saying, I'm, I don't need any props. Uh, humanity uh, defines themselves by what they do. God is saying, I am. I have I exist. I have always existed. I I am. And so Jesus uses these same words on this cohort of of soldiers. And and check out what happens. Verse six. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There's a lot of there's there's a lot of doctrine written on what um, what just happened here? Some would say that this is the first instance of, of someone being slain in the spirit, or this is just the power of God being manifest uh, at right at Jesus' feet. And I would I would tell you, maybe that, that that's what's happening. But what the soldiers are experiencing, they're literally experiencing the um, the power of Jesus' words. That they're feeling the force of his words. And I think at this moment we have to recognize. Uh, Jesus, of course, Jesus is not a victim. Jesus, in his own power, could have done whatever he wanted to with this this cohort of soldiers. Jesus also could have called a legion of angels to his aid. And uh, of course, a lot of times we have this misperception of 
of angels. Remember, angels come to do God's bidding. They come as as warriors, as soldiers. Jesus could have come and and I mean, he could have had some Star Wars type angels. Of course, everybody seen Star. Y'all seen Star Wars yet? Great movie. I want to go see it again. All right. So Star Wars type angels, like big 60 foot tall angels with lasers coming to their eyes, like zapping people. I mean, that's the kind of angel Jesus could have someone to come to his aid as these soldiers are coming toward him to arrest him. But what does I mean, what does Jesus do? He doesn't do any of that. What does he simply say? He, he just responds. I am he. And they all fall down. I think this is the what John is trying to help us see is is this is the common response to all of those who encounter the true and living God. Scripture says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. And it it won't be those who who love Jesus and have known and served him. It's going to be everybody. And these soldiers here who know nothing of Jesus at his very word, they're forced to the ground to give homage to the, the only one that deserves worship and awe. That's what's happening here. It's worship. It's awe. Feel worship. I would give anything to see what to see Judas reaction. I mean, can you imagine Judas at this point, knowing that he's betrayed the one that he's hung out with for for three years? Perhaps he fell down with all of them or perhaps he's just a size like, oh, my, what have I done? I think what we see here is that Christ has all authority. He, he's sovereign. This is this is the this is the argument that John is is making. That Jesus gives himself willingly. This isn't a plan B. And in fact, there is no plan B. God only has a plan A. And that plan A is that Jesus would willingly give his life for us. Earlier in John, John chapter 10, verse 17, we read of the authority and the willingness of Christ. It says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. And so what Jesus is doing here is is what God sent him to earth to do. Jesus willingly dies in the dark so that we can live in the light. Jesus takes our judgment so that we can take his crown and his glory. Jesus knows that we're sheep, that we're that we're foolish. Dare I say that we're even stupid like most sheep are. Don't get offended by that. He willingly gives his life for us. But but here's the picture the Bible is giving us. Jesus is is yet victorious because he's he's king of kings. This was his his destiny. So let's ask ourselves this question. What does it mean to recognize that Jesus is the king of kings? I think a number of things. Well, this is the primary thing that I think. I, I think you were created to live under the authority of God. That's really what it means to recognize Jesus as King of kings and and Lord of lords. None of us were created to live out, to live boundaryless, to to do what we want when we want to do it. Those of you that are parents in the room, you know that when you let your kids do what they want, when when they want to, it doesn't end well. And here's the unfortunate thing. Those same kinds of people grow up doing what they want when they want it, and there, there is no such thing as ultimate freedom because when you have ultimate freedom and, and boundary list, boundary list, boundary 
nest, less, whatever. Y'all get it. You're going to bump up into my freedom, right? You can't have your own freedom and not, and, and not infringe upon my own freedom. I, I think the reaction of most of us when we, when we think of this thought of authority is, is either we, we've seen authority of, of those who have power abuse it, or just because of the rebellion in us, we buck up against it and we say, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. But I think from the very first people that God put on the planet, we see we see that play throughout the thousands of years of the history of creation. When humanity is left to uh, without bounds, doing what we want to do, it always ends up with something going wrong. We were created to live with boundaries. We can't handle the authority of the universe. And of course, I'm saying a lot by saying that. But to simply say we can't handle being in charge of ourselves. Here's the good news. You were created to live with God underneath his rule, under his authorities. That's what God has destined for you. So the first thing that that we recognize or should recognize from the text here is, is that Jesus is the king of kings. The second is that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And so you've got this mob coming to Jesus and, and his disciples, and, and, and he looks out for these disciples. For whatever reason, Jesus is, is both protecting them and giving them a promise. That's what we see. Verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Uh, one commentator argues that one of the greatest miracles uh, in the Bible, but definitely in this text, is, is in this arrest and this trial, Jesus is the only one that's captured. If, if you think about the story of Jesus and his three years on earth, it wasn't that, this, that Jesus was a, a blasphemer and the one that was doing things that the religious people didn't like. It was also his cohort of people that, that were close to him, it's, uh, particularly these 11, formerly 12 disciples. They were considered to be as rebellious as Jesus was, but somehow, perhaps it was magic, they, they, did, they weren't they weren't seized along with Jesus. I don't know if y'all watch cartoons. Uh, one of my lifelong favorite cartoons has been Looney Tunes. All right. So I like Bugs Bunny and all that. Daffy Duck. Um, inside Looney Tunes, my favorite part, my favorite segments are the ones where you got the coyote and the road runner. Road runner. You remember that? Okay. Here's the, here's the, I don't even understand this, but you know, you, you watch this for years and years and years and years. And the coyote has all these elaborate traps and tricks um, by which he's going to catch the roadrunner, and he never does. I mean, he sets up some some awesome kinds of, you know, obviously vintage obstacles to capture the roadrunner, and the roadrunner, for whatever reason, always escapes. I mean, you, you'd think the, the coyote would just, like, shrivel up and die because he hadn't eaten in so long, but he doesn't. Uh, and now, of course, this is, this is not necessarily a redemptive illustration that I'm giving you, but I, th- I think... <laughs> I think it's, it's got to be kind of the same way with Jesus and these disciples and this horde of men that have come to, to, to capture all of them. For whatever reason, the disciples themselves don't get caught. And, and, and that reason can only be because Jesus is, is protecting them. Jesus lets them not be caught. He's, he's sovereign. And, and here's, the, here's the interesting thing. Jesus knows that moments from here... Only a couple hours from here, they're going to bail on him. They're going to betray him to to their very shame. But still, in this moment, 
He protects them. He also gives them a promise. Verse nine. This was to fulfill the word that has spoke uh, that he had spoken of those whom you uh, who you gave me. I've lost not one. Um, many of you, you're, a lot of y'all are military and you've had some good and some bad leaders. And all of us have been exposed to those managers who 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 lead from a distance. Those leaders who who tell you what to do, but don't participate in it because they're above it or they just don't want to come near it. This is not the kind of leadership that Jesus exudes that we see of him. Jesus doesn't lead from uh, a distance. He's not a distant deity. The, the Bible tells us Jesus is a friend of sinners, of, of ordinary people, of ordinary sinners like you and like me. And I think these are meant to be intimate words. They seem simple, but they're supposed to be intimate, that Jesus is drawing near. Even in these, I mean, even in his final hours, he's drawing near to us, always drawing near because he's a friend of sinners. This, this same Jesus who comes at Christmas as a baby, who grows up but who's existed from all eternity and who eventually will go back and and exist in the high heavens of eternity, seated at the right hand of God. Yet this God decides to come near to us. He's a friend of sinners. And here's the thing that I love. Jesus doesn't just come for for those who, who are healthy. He doesn't come for those who have their acts together. He doesn't come for all those who... Um, who just know the answer to everything. He comes for the broken. He comes for those uh, who are who are downtrodden. He comes for those who are willing to uh, who are willing to admit that they need a little bit of help. And such were some of us. Have you ever had an intimate friend, somebody that when you are around them, you feel like you can be yourself. You can let your hair down. You don't have to guard your words. You can you can set aside the the fake happy, polite you. I guess you need to be polite. That's that's a good one. I mean, but you got, yeah, you got any friends like that? I think that's what Jesus is saying to these disciples, not just in this moment, but throughout the, the three years that he spent with them, that I, I want to be intimate with you. I'm, I'm giving you the opportunity to be friends with me. This is describing the relationship that God offers to have with us. We were created for this, just like Adam and Eve, a relationship where we can be real and authentic. Let's ask ourselves, what does it mean to recognize that Jesus is a friend of sinners? I think it's epitomized in something that Jesus says in John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus promises us to that his, his friendship with us would look like this, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And some of you have friends that you could say, you know what, it's, it's, like, um, it's like Toy Story. You're, like, you're in it to win it. I mean, you're, you're my friend for life. I can't remember the exact words that, uh, that Buzz says to, to Woody. But I mean, it's, it's that kind of friendship that they have, a little bit of antagonistic, a little bit of competition, but, but you're always there with that person no matter, no matter what. And that's, how, that's the kind of friend that, that God wants to be, that he's offering himself to be for us. But, but Jesus goes one step further because this is, the, this is the friendship that Jesus offers to us. He says, I'm going to not lose any of those to whom God has called to himself. He, he has that task, and that's a promise that he fulfills. 
all that God calls to himself, Jesus secures our salvation. None of us will be lost because he goes to the cross on on our behalf. He's a friend of sinners. The last thing that we see in this text is is how we can recognize that Jesus is the savior of all. Scripture says there's no name under heaven and earth whereby, whereby we can be saved. There's there's salvation in no one else. And so we see Jesus as savior of all in this text in his substitution and in the the language of of atonement. Uh, verse 10. Then Simon Peter having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Um, I love Peter. Uh, Peter's just a very real character for me. I, I love that, that, that the Bible shows us that he has blemishes and warts, and he constantly gets things wrong, but God, God loves him. Uh, well, fast forward tw- uh, a couple of weeks from now, we'll see in verse 21, Jesus challenges Peter with these words. Peter, do you love me? Um, and of course, in Peter's life, we see because the Bible tells us that Peter responds. Peter responds to the love that God gives him uh, by, by going and, and being a leader of the, the early church. But here, Peter shows himself as, you know, as a kind of a, a screwed up disciple. Um, and. And so, I mean, you gotta see this scene. There's a thousand, so there's 300 to 800 soldiers. There's religious leaders. There's all kinds of people here in this garden. And Peter pulls his sword out, and it's like, um, it's like William Wallace from um, what's that movie called? Braveheart. It's like Marcus Aurelius Decimus from Gladiator. And Peter goes and like chops off, um, he chops off somebody's ear. But guess what? Guess whose ear it was? It was like an altar boy. I mean, look at the text. He says, he, Malchus is the, is, is the high priest's assistant. That guy couldn't have been a warrior, right? So Peter, Peter goes and, and, and makes a uh-oh. Um, some would bring out the thought that Jesus is advocating principles of, of nonviolence, but we're a military crowd, and so I don't know if that would pass over with y'all. Um, but honestly, that has some merit. Uh, Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, put, put this away. You don't, you, there's no need for you to chop his ear off. I'm going to give myself willingly. But more importantly, um, the deeper principle is that as Peter is rejecting the way of the cross. I mean, this, is, this really is a faux pas with, with Peter. I, I would call this a discipleship failure. He, he once again has failed to see why Jesus has come. Jesus came to give himself, to give his very life for people like Peter. So that people so that Peter could have life, even in his failure. And so Jesus, um, Jesus is, is telling Peter here, before you can experience the glory of a restored relationship with God, I've, I've got to die in your place. I've got to suffer in your place. That's that's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because the baby that was born at Christmas grows up to to suffer to die on the cross in our place so that we would not have to suffer. And we see that over and over as a promise given to these disciples, but also given to us in the Bible. God's way of suffering, denying ourselves, exaltation in our life will come not through glory and power. It comes through weakness. God uses messed up people like you and me to do his work on the earth. And we see that in the Bible, and hopefully we see that in your life. Uh, John finishes this, uh, this section uh, with these words in the latter half of verse 11. 
shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Those are important words because this is what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us potentially to, to drink a cup of suffering. The way of the cross is is our substitution. How do we not have to drink the cup of suffering? Because Jesus puts him puts himself in our place at every step of the way. And so the way of the cross is our substitution, but it's also our, our pattern of living. You know, in the Old Testament, the picture of the wrath of God was a cup and it, and it was told that the wicked will, will drink it, whether they want to or not. The psalmist says in Psalm 75, verse eight, for the hand of the Lord, uh, for the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine for in the hand of the Lord. There's a cup with foaming wine. Well mixed, he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And I I, I would tell you what this says to me, but what it should say to all of us is that, you know, a lot of times we don't like to hear that message. We want a God that's not a God of judgment that comes and not tells us the way that the the, the hard thing of of suffering that he he calls us to. We want a God that's, that's coming with cake and ice cream. Like everything is happy, life is always good, and I'm I'm always on your side. We we want a we want a happy God, not a God of judgment. We we want a God of love, but I would think just life itself would would, would teach you that there's always tension in every relationship. I think about your own family or close friends that you have. Have you ever had a close friend or a family member that was just going down the wrong track? They, they, at some point, life was good for them, and then they started uh, hooking up with the wrong people or doing the wrong things. Perhaps it was spending all their money frivolously or getting into uh, to things that perhaps were uh, of criminal nature, or uh, perhaps they were they, they started doing drugs. Things that that normal society would say. Uh, weren't appropriate things for people to do. I think there's two things you can do. You can stand back and be apathetic and just look and that that person, uh, whatever life is going to be for you, it'll be. Or we can step in and, and we can do something about it. And I think, I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think that's what God is doing here. He's, he's stepping in. He's, he's interrupting us when we're on a path that leads to no good and and he does the unthinkable, he substitutes himself in our place when the things that we're doing would end to would, would lead to our eventual end, our, our eventual death and the very wrath of God. And I think that shows how much God cares in that he does step in and he intervenes in our life. God's judgment is on display in that he poured out his judgment on Jesus, who cares enough for us that he he intervenes. He substitutes himself for us. Jesus takes a cup of wrath and judgment that we deserve. And and it's like that Maxwell House commercial long time ago. It, it, remember that lie they told us that it was good to. I mean, have you had, ever had instant coffee that was good to the last drop? Absolutely not. Don't drink it. It's a lie. But Jesus is not lying to us because he drinks the wrath of God down to the last drop. And that's a picture of of his atoning sacrifice for us. 
And, and, and here's the other side of of this equation. Jesus gets our wrath. We become loved and accepted and chosen before God. There's no judgment for you, Christian, if you're in Christ. Instead of judgment, God gives you the cup of blessing that Jesus has earned for you. And and he bestows these great words on you. You are loved. Now, let's let's ask ourselves this. What does it mean to recognize that Jesus is the savior of all? And I would, I, the answer is a hard answer for me. Perhaps it's a hard answer for you. It's, it's believing something that's hard for many of us in this room to believe, that God actually loves you. You know, for a lot, a lot of time in my life, I had a hard time believing. You know, I, I could say it. I could sing the song, Jesus loves me. Yes, I know, for the Bible tells me so. But in my heart of hearts, if you're not acting from it, then you don't believe it. And, and I would tell you, even now, I struggle in and out of believing that God actually loves me, even when I'm even when I'm not doing quite things I shouldn't be doing. Right. And here's here's what we say to ourselves: If you only knew me, if you only knew my thoughts, if you only knew the, the lies that I tell and how much I cheat and uh, the pride that's in my heart and and the thing that I'm doing that I haven't confessed right now, we say all those things. And, and, and it's right. You need to. Those things have to be uh, confessed and forgiven. But if you're in Christ, that's what Jesus has done for you. He's died in your place for your sin in regards to all those things. He's substituted himself. And so what does it mean to recognize Jesus as Savior of all? It's to recognize that someone has died for your sin. And as you put your faith in Jesus, you're no longer condemned. And those those are good words. You can stop playing games with your sin, whatever it is. You can come clean. You're no longer a slave to sin and unrighteousness. You're a slave to righteousness by the grace of God. How do we get that? We look to the cross. The the cross is the point of salvation for all of us. The, the, The cross brings us up close front to our sin. We see Jesus dying there for it. But in exchange for the wrath of God that we deserve, Jesus pours out on us the cup of blessing that we don't deserve. But here's the opposite, the opposite picture that we have to receive along with the love that God gives you if you're in Christ. It's this, is that if we reject Jesus as Savior and Lord, to refuse his offer of salvation through faith in him is to be left with no one to drink the cup of wrath that you deserve except for Yourself, You will be judged in your sin and have to deal with it yourself. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. These are the words of David. We would uh, if we knew David and all the things that he did, the King David from the Bible, greatest king of Israel, the man who got called a, a, a man after my own heart. But of course, David did some bad things in his life. And it's from these and it's from that that kind of place that David wrote these words. He knew that he had wronged God by wronging people. But he also knew that he was forgiven. If David were here today, we would condemn him. We would talk bad about him. But listen to David's words. He says, my sins are not account, not accounted toward me. I'm forgiven. What about you? Do you know that you're forgiven? I've got three reflective questions for you as points of application that I'll close. Firstly, 
this is the beginning of Jesus' passion. What, what are you passionate about? Are you, are you passionate about anything? And, and here's what it means to be passionate. To be passionate is to be affected by something or someone. And the example that we have of Scripture is that Jesus was passionate to obey the will of his Father. John 17, if there's any way for you to take this cup from me, please do. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus passionately fulfilled the will of his Father. And and he invites us to understand his sacrifice so intimately to know that we have been exchanged a cup of wrath for a cup of blessing and to live that compat that that kind of passion in our life as we live it on this earth. Secondly, as we consider the passion of Jesus, have you come to recognize Jesus as king, as savior, and as friend? To recognize Jesus as king is to is to surrender, is to is to give up, is to wave your white flag, as Chris Tomlin would say in his in his song, is to is to be under authority of another. To recognize Jesus as Savior would be to recognize that you can't save yourself and you need help. And, and here's the beautiful thing. When you get Jesus as Savior, you get him as friend. Romans five says he's no longer your enemy. He's reconciled you uh, with God. Lastly, are you forgiven? Really, are you? Are you? Do you know that you're forgiven? Have your sins been washed away by the blood of Jesus on the cross? Are you sure that you won't receive a cup of blessing instead of a cup of wrath? I'll conclude with this. What is passion? To be sure, it's the greatest of all tragedies where a young leader, a young teacher, more beautiful in character and more perfect in love than any other, a brilliant, compassionate, mighty savior, friend and king was unjustly arrested. He was cruelly betrayed, savagely cut down in the prime of his manhood. Yet John, gospel writer John, insists its message is good news of hope for those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And in these words from the gospel writer John, we thank you that you have reenacted the the things that he endured as he went to the cross. Lord, we see his passion. We see his passion to fulfill uh, your will. We see his passion for those uh, that you've called to yourself. We see his passion to be both our king, our savior, and our friend. And Lord, our prayer today is simply that you would uh, not help us just to agree with these words and to find them interesting uh, or or to even uh, be saddened by what uh, happened to Jesus as he bore our cross. But Lord, that we would gain some of his passion for life, for suffering for the gospel's sake, and that, Lord, Lord, we would live uh, passionate lives centered on Jesus. That's our prayer. Even as we begin this new year, Lord God, we, we pray uh, for, for the kind of passion that would help us live this Christian life out loud before the world that you have put us and before our neighbors, before those that we work with, uh, those that we encounter as we're out recreating around the area. Would you give us passion for you, Jesus? Would you give us passion for uh, the words of Scripture? Would you give us passion that we would come to you, beckoning you to, uh, to, to change us by your word and by your gospel? 
Would you give us passion? We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.